Out front next, Israeli troops inside Gaza City tonight. The defense minister saying Hamas fighters are coming out of underground tunnels. And this is the first Americans have been allowed to leave Gaza, which includes the American pediatrician Barbara Zind. Her husband, who's eagerly awaiting her return, will be out front. And Donald Trump Jr. testifying in the case that could spell the end of the Trump org. We'll tell you what he said under oath today and what happened inside that courtroom with the sketch artist. Plus, our own K-File digging into the new House Speaker's past, his work with a group that promoted conversion therapy and a long record of anti-gay comments. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, we begin with the breaking news inside Gaza City. The Israeli defense minister tonight saying that there is intense fighting inside Gaza City, one of the most densely populated cities in the world. Gaza City, of course, is the biggest city in the Gaza Strip. The defense minister of Israel, Yoav Gallant, says soldiers in Gaza City have described Hamas fighters as coming out of underground tunnels from underground buildings, uh, under, from underground buildings, hospitals and schools. So they're saying that they're, they're basically coming out of those tunnels and engaging in street fighting. Of course, a battle in Gaza City, bloody and deadly. Israel also already announcing today that it is burying the dead from one of the deadliest days in the history of its ground operations in Gaza on the Israeli side. A total of 15 soldiers were killed there on Tuesday, according to the Israeli Defense Forces. But this all comes in the context of the loss of life in Gaza itself. And the worldwide, worldwide outrage is hitting a boiling point after Israel admitted its airstrikes caused a second explosion in just 24 hours in the Jabalia refugee camp. These are before and after pictures. You can see the densely populated area decimated. The director of the New York High Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights resigning over the UN's response to the situation in Gaza, which he described as a, quote, textbook case of genocide. We have a special report on the strikes on that refugee camp. And IDF spokesman Jonathan Conriquez is also here to respond. But amidst the losses and the incredible suffering, a glimmer of hope for some today, some innocent civilians finally being allowed to leave the 25-mile-long Gaza Strip. An Egyptian official telling CNN that 361 foreign nationals have now left Gaza, entering Egypt through that Rafa border crossing. That includes the American pediatrician Barbara Zind, who we've been following on this program. Here are images of Dr. Zind making her way out of Gaza, where she had been sleeping in a car with other people, witnessed violence and fights over scarce food, and witnessed a toilet shared by 800 people. Uh, we've, we've been speaking to her over these past weeks, and her husband, we're told she is now in Cairo. In a moment, I'm going to be speaking with her husband, uh, who will be with us. But despite this welcome news for 361 people, the context here is that more than 2 million are still stuck in Gaza, and 240 of them are hostages still being held captive by Hamas from the October 7th terror attack. Earlier, I spoke to Rotem Cooper. His parents, his mother and father, both kidnapped back on October 7th. After 17 days in captivity, uh, his 79-year-old mother, Nareet Cooper, is free. He told me more about what she experienced while being held captive. The hard thing about it is, is being uh, deep in the ground uh, with, um, you don't know, pretty much night from day, uh, power outages, can be quite humid. To imagine that, not knowing night from day, and that those 240 people are still suffering from that tonight. So many developments this hour. Nick Robertson is out front live along the Israel-Gaza border. Nada Bashir is in Jerusalem. I want to begin with you, Nick, because I know you just, uh, you've been hearing a lot of explosions, seeing flashes where you are. 
So what is the latest that you are hearing and learning about the fighting inside Gaza? Yeah, we're hearing some distant tank fire as well, as well as those occasional explosions. We're about six, six and a half miles from the center of Gaza City. The commander of the ground forces in there, the steel division, says that the troops are at the gates of Gaza City. The uh, defense minister described the combat there as fierce urban combat and has been talking about the anti-tank weapons that the Hamas uh, fighters are using. These anti-tank weapons are designed to pierce the armor, the protective armor that's on the tanks and these uh, up-armored infantry fighting vehicles that the troops are in. And I think witness to that point, uh, the IDF announcing uh, 15 deaths over the past 24 hours for troops in Gaza. There are others who have been injured in that uh, receiving blast injuries as well. But I think perhaps the strongest language that gives us a sense of the fight that's coming, of the motivation that's required for the troops in there, uh, from the commander of the IDF forces, General Harlevy, telling uh, the, the troops that they are in the middle of a battle, that this will be a long war, that they will fight to the end, that they're doing this for the country, for the good of the nation, but also saying very clearly that you are now in enemy territory. You're backed up by strong accurate weapons, but you're in enemy territory. And I think that sets the scene of where the forces are at at the moment. It's very clear as they get deeper inside those uh, urban environments that Hamas is familiar with those environments and they have armor-piercing weapons and plans of how to use them against the IDF. So this is a very tough moment uh, for, the, for where the fight goes from here, Aaron. All right, Nick, thank you very much. As you said, just six miles uh, from where that fighting is going on. And we know those Israeli troops are in there uh, now. They're there, not coming in and coming out. They're there overnight. And in Gaza tonight, a second IDF strike on the Jabalia camp. The IDF saying it was a targeted strike on Hamas. Of course, though, many innocent civilians also appear to have been killed. Nada Bashir is out front in Jerusalem. And I want to warn you that some of the images in her report are graphic. Chaos and horror at Gaza's Jabalia refugee camp. Wounded children rushed to nearby ambulances. The latest casualties of Israel's relentless aerial bombardment. This densely populated neighborhood gripped by panic and sheer disbelief. A second Israeli airstrike in less than 24 hours. I lost my whole family. Abdul Karim says, holding a list of those killed just today. My sister's house was struck with her children inside. My brother's house too, with all of his children. There is no one left except for me and my younger brother. They were innocent. What did they do to deserve this? Israel's defense force says it was targeting a Hamas command and control complex in Jabalia. Hamas fighters said to be among those killed. But Jabalia is home to more than 100,000 civilians, according to the UN. And while the full extent of the civilian death toll remains unclear at this stage, Gaza's Civil Defense Authority has described this latest disaster as a massacre, with more casualties and more fatalities added to the list of hundreds said to have been killed or wounded in Tuesday's airstrike. This situation is beyond belief. Many have been killed, bodies have been left burned and charred by the airstrike, this doctor says. 
There isn't a hospital in the world that could cope with this kind of situation. We're having to treat patients on the floor and in corridors. The scale of the destruction at Jabalia is difficult to grasp. Many residents are still buried beneath the blackened rubble. Rescue workers and civilians dig side by side, desperate to find survivors. This house had 15 people in it, but we still haven't been able to find any of them, Hassan Ahmed says. We have no equipment. We are digging alone. And look, Erin, we've seen these airstrikes continuing to bombard parts of northern Gaza. This is an area where the IDF has warned civilians and residents to evacuate southwards, warning that those airstrikes will intensify. But as we have seen over the course of the last three weeks, more than three weeks now, those airstrikes are continuing across the Gaza Strip, not just in the north, but in central and southern Gaza, too, in so-called safe zones, including areas where many are sheltering, including UN schools. And for many inside Gaza right now, the fear for them is that there is simply nowhere safe to turn. Mm. Erin? All right, Netta, thank you very much. Netta Bashir, as we said, in Jerusalem reporting tonight. I want to go out front now to the Israeli Defense Forces spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus. Colonel, I appreciate your time again, uh, obviously, in these early hours of the morning for you. Um, you, you heard that man there, you know, asking the question of, of, about his family who are dead. What did they do to deserve this? What is your reaction, Colonel, to these accusations that you hear that the strikes on the Jabalia refugee camp uh, are hitting civilians and amount to a massacre by the IDF? Hi, Erin. Sad images, really, at the human level. When I watch it and I detach myself from the reality that we are facing, I see sad events and I see people suffering and that is not something that we intend to. Um, what I could say to that man without even a drop of cynicism is, you should have evacuated you and your family. You shouldn't have been there. That doesn't mean that we wanted to kill anybody. It just means that when we warned Palestinians two weeks ago to evacuate that specific area because there was going to be major combat operations, they should have heeded the warning and they should have left. The sad reality that is unfolding now is that the civilians in Gaza are paying the price for the atrocities of Hamas. We are fighting a battle here to defend ourselves. We cannot allow a situation for Hamas to continue to exist after the atro atrocities of October 7th. And in order for us to be able to safeguard ourselves, mm. we have to eradicate Hamas wherever they are, even if they're hiding in tunnels underneath uh, populated areas. Uh, Colonel Conricus, so the point, though, about wanting them to leave, I mean, these are 100,000 people in a refugee camp. By definition, they lack resources. Where were people like that Aaron, supposed to go? Was it even reasonable to tell them to go? I mean, they don't have anything yes. to begin with. No, no, that is unfortunately not accurate at all. And if you'll let me, I'd, I'd like to explain why. If you look at the footage that you're showing, you don't see tents. This isn't some makeshift refugee camp. These are permanent dwellings of Palestinians living in a Palestinian-controlled area under Palestinian rule. These aren't refugees no more than my grandparents are refugees who came from Poland and Morocco in 1948. This is the time scope that we're talking about. These aren't refugees, and it's not a refugee camp any more than half of the population in modern Israel are refugees of the expulsion of 
from Arab countries in 1948. So, yes. Colonel, I understand your point. Evacuate. I understand your point about permanence. I'm sure King Abdullah would say the same about refugee camps of Syrians uh, in, in Jordan and, and Egypt, the same about other refugee camps they have. But while I understand the point you're making about the permanency of the residents, they are poor. And their they ability can't to leave. move, Aaron. Yes, they could. They could. They made a decision. Now, it does. the fact that they made the wrong decision does not make them a target. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying that we warned ahead. Everybody in Jabalia knows. The same guy who was holding the page, listing the unfortunate deaths in his family, I feel for him. But he knows that Hamas is there. He knows that the place is full of what they call Mukawama, resistance. All of them know it. And they so, know that they will be fighting there. And they know that the safest place for them to be is not there. It's in the South. So let me ask you a question about, though, how you know what you're striking. Because I know you put out a statement today, the IDF did, at least, Colonel, regarding the second strike, right? The second strike in 24 hours in Jabalia camp. And, the, and a quote from it is that based on precise intelligence, IDF fighter jets struck Hamas command and control complex in Jabalia. Uh, Colonel, of course, we all know Israeli intelligence failed in the lead up to the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. How do you know that Israeli intelligence is right now? Erin, I think you asked the same question three weeks ago, and I think I'll, I'll provide the same answer that I'm saying now. We are basing our military operations off intelligence. We continue to monitor their communications. We continue to listen and see what they're doing. We issue information, not claims, but we issue names, faces, and positions of dead Hamas commanders and key operatives. We do that because we do still have excellent intelligence, very granular intelligence of what they are doing, of their whereabouts. Granted, I, have, I cannot argue with what you said, the first part. Yes, we failed on October 7th, clearly, and that needs to be investigated. But definitely, that does not imply that uh, our intelligence is wrong. On the contrary, we, we continue yeah. working based on that intelligence, and we generate more intelligence. Our ground troops are there in friction with the enemy. Every encounter, when we meet the enemy, we defeat them, even if we have casualties, and then we generate more and more targeting intelligence. All right. Well, Colonel Conricus, thank you very much. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. All right. And next, an exclusive dispatch from our journalist, Ibrahim Dahman in Gaza, where he visits a shelter where 20,000 people are crammed together and they're hungry and afraid. Plus, former President Trump's eldest son takes the witness stand in Trump's New York fraud case. What did he say under oath about his father's business empire? A new CNN K-File reporting tonight on House Speaker Mike Johnson's past and his controversial ties to a group that claimed it could turn gay people straight. It's time for an honest conversation about homosexuality. There's freedom to change if you want to. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, for the first time, a few people allowed to leave Gaza, Americans among them, the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza, let some people through, 361 to be precise, according to Egyptian officials. And right now, a small group of American citizens, along with a few hundred foreign nationals and dozens of badly injured Palestinians, have been able finally to leave, and they are now in Cairo, finally allowed to escape after more than three weeks under siege. Among them, American Dr. Barbara Zind. And you're looking at images of Dr. Zind finally leaving Gaza, trapped there for 26 days. You you know her. You've seen her images almost every night as we've been following her story. She was there to help children uh, and ended up in the middle of a war, surviving increasingly desperate conditions. At one point at the end, living out of a car, sleeping there with as many as six other people, food and water, incredibly short supply, One toilet shared by 800 people. You can imagine the lines, the agony, the disease. Her husband, Paul Preston, shared updates without front throughout her entire ordeal. Uh, And tonight she is now beginning finally to begin her way home to Colorado uh, and and to see you, Paul. So Paul Preston's with me. And Paul, thank goodness. I mean, you had become increasingly, increasingly anguished about her situation uh, I, I know that you're you're hoping to obviously have a chance to speak with her very soon. Where is she and how is she? Um, I've just been hearing uh, secondhand about her. Um, she's, I think, uh, going to be arriving in Cairo uh, fairly soon. Uh, and is going to stay there for a night and then come on back to Colorado. Um, I've heard that she's feeling okay, but again, I haven't talked to her directly. Right. And I, 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 I imagine, you know, there's okay. And, and then there's the, just, just, just dealing with what, what she's seen and experienced. And I know her deep care for those she has left behind. Uh, do you have any information as to what it was like as she left Paul? Uh, well, she was put on a list. Um, uh, my sister-in-law who's Palestinian read on the Rafa Facebook page that, um, uh, my wife and Ramona were 15th and 16th on the NGO list uh, to be evacuated. So they got up early and then went to the border. They said it was, uh, well, indirectly again, they said it was fairly orderly. People were calling out people's names and then would come up. There were some fighting. I'm not sure what they're fighting about. She said that she saw, quote, only uh, two fist fights. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, once she got to the Palestinian um border crossing. She was there for like five hours and four or five hours in passport control. And that's when I was starting to get discouraged because she texted me that. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen now? But I think what was going on, just conjecture is that they were, you know, removing the injured and letting the ambulances through. And so once, you know, once she started to, you know, uh, go through the system, then she was 
took a shuttle to the Egyptian part of the uh, border. And then she got into a car uh, arranged by PCRF. I think there was like six people in this car, but they did arrange a police escort for her to get across the Sinai. Um, you know, the last time we spoke, you know, she had to flee that same crossing because of fights over food. I know at one point, you know, she had gotten close, uh, sort of, you know, in the hopes. And then you had described the, these people, literally, people were literally fighting outside a UN compound for food, for food. Um, you know, what, what, what are the conditions as you understand it now? I mean, I know you're describing as she was leaving only two fist fights, but um, what were the conditions as she was leaving that she was living under and others around her living under? Well, she's uh, like before very fortunate. Uh, she was living in a, um, a clinic that was attached to a school and was now sleeping inside, which was uh, different than what was going on before. They actually had a stove that had gas, so they could have some hot food. You know, before they used a campfire. Out, you know, when they were in the compound, okay. she didn't mention how it was outside. I, mean, I think she was, um, you know, saying that it's all. You know, it's just was so bad she kind of got used to it. I mean, it was just bad like all the time. The one good thing about where she was is the uh, bombing was not as close. And so uh, that made her feel feel more secure. Mm. Well, Paul, thank you very much. I'm so glad to speak with you finally with this being the reason why. Uh, and, and thank you so much. And I hope she's getting some rest and we will be speaking to you soon. Thanks. And we appreciate you, Aaron, for keeping these people in the public eye with these stories. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. It's the least we can do. Well, Dr. Zind is one of the lucky few uh, able to leave Gaza tonight because, of course, there are countless Gazans, well over a million, two million who can't. Those include our CNN colleague, Ibrahim Dachman, along with his wife and their two young boys. He's been out front's eyes and ears on the ground in Gaza since the war began. So tonight, he reports from a U.N. refugee camp near Khan Yunus, where he says there are right now, as we are talking, 20,000 people, no mattresses. الأكل بيجيهم بشكل مش يومي متقطع المياه مياه عادية بتصلهم مياه يعني غير صالحة للشرب الأكل كتير سيء يعني كل يومين ثلاثة لما بصلهم شوية معلبات المكان مقتص جدا صورنا مع عدة عائلات ساكنين بخيام كتير من الناس منهم بناموا على الأرض لو مطرت الدنيا يعني مش حيكون لهم مكان ولا حيكونوا يعني بعاد عن المطر بيحكوا إنه فوق العشرين ألف مواطن في هذا المكان يعني مكان كبير كبير كبير. All right, twenty thousand people. Eve says, living off of canned food, sleeping on the ground, as we're speaking now. That's our Ibrahim Dachman continuing to bravely report tonight on that. Grim reality as he endures it with his wife and young boys. And next, prosecutors in Trump's fraud trial questioning Donald Trump Jr. under oath. Trump's legal team, though, opting not to cross-examine the president's son. How come? 
and Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna taking on the Republic pre Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy for saying that he'd love nothing more than for the IDF to put Hamas leaders' heads on a stake. Why did Khanna want this debate? He'll tell you. He's out front. New tonight, Donald Trump Jr. under oath, the former president's oldest son, testifying for about 90 minutes today in the Trump org fraud trial, denying any involvement in the preparation of his father's financial statements, including uh, after his father became president and he was appointed trustee of a revocable trust. Donald Jr. saying he left all of that to the accountants. He is the first of three Trump children scheduled to testify. He'll be back on the stand tomorrow. Former President Trump himself is still scheduled to take the stand on Monday. Eric Larson is out front now, the Bloomberg News or legal reporter who was in the courtroom. And Ryan Goodman, our out front legal analyst. All right. So, Eric, you know, we've been talking to you throughout this trial. You were you've been inside throughout. You were inside for all of it today. Um, we've got a courtroom sketch of him on the stand because you saw it from your own eyes. We just get these sketches. But there he is. Uh, according to The Washington Post, quote, um, he left the room for the afternoon break. Don Jr. paused to hover over the courtroom sketch artist's work, looking at her drawing of him. Uh, sounds like father, like son. But um, can, can you tell me about that and what the mood was like when he was on that stand? Uh, well, when he was on the stand, he was actually started out pretty jovial. He cracked a joke at the beginning when the judge, for a few minutes, had some uh, photographers and videographers come in to, to uh, take some shots. And he cracked a joke about how, oh, I should have put on my makeup this morning, and everyone kind of laughed. Um, he also cracked a few jokes on the witness stand. Uh, at one point, while he was speaking really quickly, the judge you know, asked him to slow down for the court reporter, and he joked about uh, how he had moved to Florida, but he still talks like a New Yorker, that sort of thing. Um, so he was pretty laid back, especially compared to sort of the demeanor of his father when, when he's been in court and, and speaking to reporters outside the courtroom and lashing out sort of at yeah, the very, very judge. angry. Right. And so there was none of that from, from Donald Trump. And he seemed prepared. He did seem prepared. He answered the questions real quickly. Uh, as uh, for the first hour or so, it was a lot of background about his his work at the Trump Organization and all of the projects that he's worked on. Um, toward the end, uh, he was asked more pointed questions about his role and these statements of financial condition, these allegedly inflated documents at the center of the case. And he got a, a little more animated at that point in denying any involvement in those documents. And, and again, Ryan, we should make the point here that this, this trial is not about guilt or innocence that's been determined by the judge. All parties had agreed to that being the way this works as opposed to a jury. So this is about damages and what liability the, the former president Trump org may have in the, in, in the overstatement. But even if Don Jr. is telling the truth, and Eric says he made the argument, he doesn't know anything about who you know, what the accountants did, uh, whether people inflated, uh, despite obviously his role up at the time uh, at the Trump org, that could still be a problem for him, right? It could be a problem for him in multiple ways. Um, it's helpful to him in some respect because it means that he wasn't necessarily involved in fraudulently misrepresenting the business records or something like that because he didn't know what was going on. Right. Wasn't him. At least that's what he says. That's right. Mm -hmm. But at the other hand, it also suggests that he's not really practicing due diligence. That's, in fact, part of the allegations in the um, attorney general's documents submitted to the court that he should have known, or he should have explored. And he's signing the certification saying mm -hmm. it is according to uh, accounting standards. And now he's saying, I don't even know what those standards are. That's one of the problems. The other one is maybe the judge doesn't believe him. The, the judge might make a credibility determination, and that's important in terms of if the, the judge's final orders will be appealed and if he would be overturned. If he makes some of these based on factual 
determinations that he doesn't find some of the witnesses credible, that is very difficult to overturn him because he's the judge in the courtroom making that kind of determination mm. and only he can really decide that. All right, so where do you think, Eric, he's going to be back tomorrow, right? This this almost had been delayed by a day, right? Because right. uh, Michael McCarty was ahead, that was going slow. Uh, so he's going to finish tomorrow. Where do you think he's the most vulnerable as the state continues questioning in the morning? Well, there are several parts of the complaint uh, that specify Donald Trump Jr.'s role in these statements of financial condition in terms of using them to give to banks like Deutsche Bank and verifying their accuracy uh, as he was handing them over under the terms of their loans uh, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and on top of that, there is at least one example of Don Jr. and some of the others at Trump Org being alerted to the fact that uh, one, of their, one of the main assets, their Trump's uh, three-story penthouse at Trump Tower, the, the size of it and value is exaggerated by about three times to over $300 million. And, you know, Forbes magazine looked into it in 2015 or so yeah. and told them about it. And they sort of just said, ah, oh, well, and apparently just went ahead and submitted it to Deutsche yeah. Bank and Mazars anyway. Which, by the way, I mean, there's overstating and there's sort of, you know, there's poetic license in <laughs> real estate. $300 million for a penthouse uh, years ago, that, that's, that's not in that realm. No, it's not. It's an order of magnitude. So <laughs> out of it. So they're in deep trouble. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you both very much. I appreciate it. And next, new reporting tonight from CNN's K-File on House Speaker Mike Johnson's past, his work with a group that vowed to turn gay people straight, and his long history of anti-gay comments. You'll hear the tape. And is Trump now the king of gas? We did with Obama. We won an election that everyone said couldn't be won. Uh, he says Obama, but remember, it was Hillary Clinton that he beat. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, dangerous. That's how former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney describes the new House Speaker Mike Johnson. Cheney wants sharing an adjoining office with Johnson on Capitol Hill so she knows him. And it comes as CNN's Cape File has uncovered details about Johnson's history with a group that promoted gay conversion therapy, a long debunked theory that gay people could be made straight. Here's some of what he said in the past. It's time for an honest conversation about homosexuality. There's freedom to change if you want to. CNN uh, K-File, Andrew Kaczynski, is out front. So, uh, Andrew, that's, um, you know, pretty unambiguous. But what else did you find? Yeah, so for years, uh, Johnson worked with this group called Exodus International on an anti-gay event aimed at teens. Now, Exodus was a leader uh, in what was called the ex-gay movement. We talked a little bit about it in that intro where they claimed that you could essentially uh, change somebody's sexuality through counseling uh, through prayer, they basically treated uh, being gay as a mental illness. Now, Johnson uh, and this group, when he was a attorney at this socially conservative organization called the Alliance Defense Fund, collaborated on this event called the Day of Truth. And this was actually in response to a, a pro-gay event called the Day of Silence. Um, it was to raise awareness about bullying uh, for gay teens. And then they launched this event 
The next day uh, in 2005, that was about basically they'd pass out cards. Uh, they would tell people uh, that you could change your sexual behavior. They pointed wow. teens to their website, and this had um, uh, links to Exodus's uh, uh, ministries. And we actually have some audio of Johnson talking about that event. Let's take a listen to it. Our race, the size of our feet, the color of our eyes, these are things we're born with and we cannot change. But what these, these adult advocacy groups like the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network are promoting is a type of behavior. Homosexual behavior is something you do. It's not something that you are. Hmm. And I think we should note, too, that Exodus actually shut down in 2013. Their uh, founder issued a long apology apologizing for the hurt and pain that this sort of thing has caused. And we actually spoke to a former executive when we were working on this story, uh, and he said that this sort of thing was very damaging for, for gay teens. So what else did you find on Johnson's record on gay rights? So homosexuality was a very, uh, it was a topic he talked about a lot. Uh, when that Lawrence v. Texas ruling came down in 2003, which threw out state sodomy laws, Johnson actually wrote to say that uh, he thought those laws should have stayed in place. He called homosexuality, uh, we reported last week, uh, inherently unnatural. He called it a dangerous lifestyle. Mm. Uh, he was very against same-sex marriage, and he actually said uh, it was going to bring down a democracy, and then he said people would be marrying their pets, uh, like goldfish, cats, things like that. Um, and he even shared this sort of odd pseudoscience or a historical theory that the Roman Empire fell because, because of homosexuality. Of homosexuality. Huh. Uh, and we have a clip of that as well. Many historians, the, those who are objective, would look back and, and, uh, and recognize and, and um, give some credit to the fall of Rome to not only the, the, the deprivation of the society and the, the loss of morals, but also to uh, the rampant you know, homosexual behavior uh, that was uh, condoned by the society. So we did reach out to Johnson's office. We asked about those clips. We asked, uh, is, does he still believe this stuff? Does he believe in conversion therapy? Uh, we didn't get a response from them. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. I appreciate it. The K-File. And now I want to go to Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. Congressman, you just heard uh, all of that. You heard those clips. Um, this is now the House Speaker. Uh, this is the person who is the Speaker of the House. Um, does it surprise you that someone who clearly has advocated these views is now the speaker? It doesn't surprise me. They're obviously very extreme. They're wrong. They don't recognize the dignity of every American. Uh, and it's not what Americans believe. But look, there's a, an extreme wing of the Republican Party that is uh, determining who the speaker is. And unfortunately, Speaker Johnson is beholden to them. The House just voted to kill Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's censure of Representative Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian American. Of course, Tlaib has taken a position on Israel. She supports a recent uh, pro-Palestinian protest at, at the Capitol. Uh, she was clear about that. Uh, you wondered how many Republicans would stand up to her right to free speech as you see it. 23 of them did. 186 voted to censure. But nonetheless, nonetheless 23 of them did stand up for her. Are you surprised about that? I uh, applaud their courage in standing up for the First Amendment. Look, I 
absolutely condemned what Hamas did and have stood up for Israel's right to defend itself and voted that way. But in a democracy, we should allow people to have different views. And Rashida Tlaib has a grandmother uh, who is in uh, Palestine. She has lived experience. She should be able to speak uh, out for her views. And if they're wrong or if she has misstatements, correct her. But don't mm -hmm. suppress her First Amendment speech. You were in New Hampshire today debating a Republican presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy. And at one point, Congressman, you gave him an opportunity to retract a recent statement he made. Uh, his statement said that he would, quote, love nothing more. That's what he said. Love nothing more than if IDF, the IDF put Hamas leaders' heads on stakes. Okay. You, you, you gave him a chance to retract this. I want to play the exchange. There you say you want the Hamas leaders uh, on stakes and at the Gaza border. And I guess this is if where- Israel, If Israel wants to do that, they should be able to do it. Yeah, this is where I think we, we have a difference just in terms of leadership. If we were to put Hamas leaders on stakes, we're we're not would, we would all, if Israel were to do it, we should tell them absolutely not. Not just because they're violating yeah, the Geneva Convention, because Already, Christopher Ray is saying there are heightened threats to Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans here. Why do we want to inflame the threat? Israel is an ally. What does that actually mean? You let an ally defend themselves as they deem fit. So he stands by it, heads on stakes. If you're an ally, you're an ally. You let an, an ally defend themselves as they deem fit. Why was it important to you to have this debate and conversation? Well, what I was trying to say there is look at President Obama when he got Osama bin Laden, he deposed of the remains in the sea. When you have this kind of inflammatory rhetoric, especially for someone who's running for president and in the top five, it puts all of us at risk. It heightens the terrorist threats that Christopher Ray is talking about to U.S. troops, to Jewish Americans, to Muslim Americans. And I was hoping to engage him in a civil conversation to show substantive differences and hopefully to persuade people that we need more rationality and prudence in foreign policy. Uh, and, and yet, of course, you've been very pro-Israel. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't support a, a ceasefire. Uh, you've had people demonstrating in front of your office saying that you should. Obviously, people like Rashida Tlaib, who are in your progressive caucus, do support that. You don't. Your political director resigned over your, your stance on this. You've held firm. Why do you believe a ceasefire is wrong? Well, I'm where Bernie Sanders is. I'm where uh, many, Jamie Raskin is, and that is in a humanitarian pause, that we need to ha have Israel's right to defend itself. Israel should be able to go after the Hamas perpetrators who have committed this heinous act. Any country would want to do that, but we need to value Palestinian lives. We can't have bombing that is going after civilians, innocent children and women. Now, it's hard because Hamas often has those civilians uh, in uh, military sites, but at the same time, we need extraordinary care. And right now I'm saying let's have a humanitarian pause with food, water, electricity, which I'd say is the majority progressive position. All right. I appreciate your time, Congressman Khanna. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. All right. And next, Trump's made a campaign out of making fun of Biden's gaffes. But is he starting to stumble a, a, a bit too much, too? Like saying he beat Obama or that Biden could lead the United States into World War II. And New York making an example tonight of a student who's accused of threatening to bring an assault rifle to campus to shoot Jewish people.
Tonight, turning the tables on Trump, the Ron DeSantis campaign hammering Trump for a string of gaffes that he's made on the campaign trail recently, launching what it's called a Trump accident tracker, trying to get traction. Today, the campaign mocking Trump's teleprompter reading ability, calling his performance sad, to use a Trump word, and saying Trump is sounding a lot like Biden. But put the politics aside, because the attacks from DeSantis come as Trump has been trying to make an issue out of Joe Biden's age and fitness office for office relentlessly. Well, so now you got to look at his record, too. Kristen Holmes is out front. It's a new feature of Donald Trump's stump speech. Where am I? The former president delivering an exaggerated impersonation of Joe Biden, mocking the Democrats' age and fitness for office. He stands there. He doesn't even know what the hell. He can't he can't get off a stage. He can't put two sentences together and he's in charge of nuclear warfare. Oh, my. But it's Trump's own verbal stumbles, such as predicting a future war that ended nearly 80 years ago. We would be in World War II very quickly. Claiming he defeated Barack Obama in an election. We did with Obama. We won an election that everyone said couldn't be won. And mistakenly referring to Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban as the leader of Turkey. Viktor Orban. Did ever, anyone ever hear of him? He's probably like one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. And he, uh, he's the leader of, right? He's the leader of Turkey. But Viktor Orban, and he's the head of Hungary, and he runs a tough that are giving his rivals, Democrats and Republicans alike, an opening to turn the tables. And what Donald Trump does now, he is wedded to the teleprompter. He can't get off that teleprompter. This is a different Donald Trump than 2015 and 16. Um, lost the zip on his fastball, has a sense of entitlement. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign also launched what it's calling a Trump accident tracker to highlight the former president's verbal slips on the campaign trail. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, meanwhile, jabbed at the former president's lack of moral clarity on foreign policy. With all due respect, I don't get confused. President Joe Biden's re-election campaign is also seeking to draw attention to Trump's missteps, clipping the moments and promoting them on social media. A very big hello to a place where we've done very well, Sioux Falls. Thank you very much, Sioux Falls. And So, Sioux City, let me ask you. At 80, Biden is America's oldest sitting president and would be 86 at the end of his second term. Trump is about three and a half years younger than Biden. He's not too old. He's incompetent. And Aaron, despite this relatively small age gap between these two men, the way that voters view them is wide. In a recent NBC News poll, they found that 59 percent of voters had major concerns that Biden did not have the necessary physical or mental health that was needed to serve another presidential term. That compared to only 34 percent who felt that way about Trump. Hmm. Aaron? All right, Kristen, thank you very much. And next, a warning from New York's governor after a student was arrested for allegedly threatening to shoot up a kosher dining hall. Tonight, you cannot get away with this. That's a quote, the direct words of the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, after a 21-year-old Cornell student was arrested for making anti-Semitic threats against Jewish students online. I want to make an example. If you do this, you will be caught and you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Patrick Dye appeared in court today. The Department of Justice alleges he threatened to, quote, shoot up a kosher dining hall.
The DOJ also alleges he used several usernames to write the threats, including one called Hamas Soldier. Dai could face up to five years in prison if he is convicted. Meantime, his parents uh, have spoken out, telling the New York Post that he struggles with depression. They say he doesn't have a history of violence. Nonetheless, the Attorney General Merrick Garland today referenced Dai's arrest. He was hosting a forum on hate crimes, of which there has been, of course, a surge in hate crimes, noting a significant, he said, uptick in threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab Americans. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We'll be back here tomorrow night. AC360 with Anderson Cooper begins right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.